This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Clinton roars with Katy Perry. Sanders' playlist highlights his revolution, and Trump is rocking in the free world, even though Neil Young may hate it. The candidates and their music, this week on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for listening. Music has been a staple of U.S. political campaigns since George Washington's second election, the campaign jingle refined by Kennedy, and with Ronald Reagan, pop music blasted onto the political election scene. Today, Trump uses the Puccini aria Nessum Dorma to present himself to his crowds, and Katy Perry's roar is one of Hillary Clinton's election themes. It's a fascinating look at what image and feelings the politicians want to project on us through their choice of music. I'm joined by Dr. Eric Casper, professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and a co-author of the book, Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, the Politics of Songs and Musicians in Presidential Campaigns. Here, he examines how politics, music, and pop culture intertwine. During the interview, if you want to check out the candidates' playlist that we talk about and some of the music we reference, it's all up on the site, popcultureconfidential.com. Dr. Eric Casper, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I wanted to start by asking you a, an observation, a pop cultural observation surrounding the election, just to get your thoughts. It seems like a while back, comedians um, were feeling like Donald Trump was a joke. They were an unrealistic candidate. Um, SNL even had him as a guest on the show, for example. But the past few weeks, something seemed to change, and the, there was like sort of less parody and more on-the-nose comedy. Sarah Silverman came out on Conan dressed as Hitler, saying that even Hitler is offended by the Trump comparisons. SNL did a sketch sort of highlighting the real racism of the campaign. Was pop culture sort of late to catch on? Well, I think, uh, you know, pop culture has has been there since the start uh, and, uh, you know, all, all the way back to when Donald Trump made his announcement, uh, you know, there were there were people covering that and, and, and making a bit of fun of it, of how he was descending this escalator and then of course he had a, a a bit of a dispute with neil young because he had played rockin' in the free world at his at his announcement last summer uh but uh, yeah I, I think that people didn't take donald trump very seriously uh that they thought that he he didn't have any realistic chance of winning uh it looked almost like a publicity stunt for him to be able to uh, get some extra attention, maybe, maybe then you know, draw more viewers into The Apprentice or something like that. Uh, but as his campaign has gained more and more momentum, uh, and now he started to win, and it looks like there's a good chance he could be the Republican nominee. Uh, that that's that's t- changed the tenor of uh, not only the debate within uh, you know within political science and amongst journalists, but within those in pop culture as well. Um, because with some of the things that he said uh, and some of the things that he's advocated, um, I mean, it, it, it would mean some very big changes from what our, our policies are now. And if, if that scares people, and you know, even those who are comedians and people in pop culture, uh, that's, we're kind of at the point now where people are 
standing up and taking notice and rather than simply, you know, just doling out the jokes, um, you know, thinking about what the, what the repercussions of that could be. You as, that have studied this for so long, would you say anyone today of the candidates that really you think is using music in interesting ways for you? Uh, well, I, I think both of the kind of most insurgent candidates in each party uh, are, are probably doing it in the most interesting way uh, in that Sanders and Trump, uh, which isn't to say that, you know, the other campaigns aren't using music uh, because they certainly are. But, you know, the way that, that Sanders ha- and, and, and each of them has been using it in a different way, but effectively. Uh, Sanders has been finding music that has been consistently going to the same theme, and he's been using a variety of music, uh, doing you know music that is in both advertisements as well as live at his rallies, and then of course these sing-alongs as well with the crowd. Uh, but the the music has largely been focused on his central message. Trump, on the other hand, has been very good at employing the, these songs to express a wide variety of messages. Uh, now, of course, Trump has also been running into artists uh, across the board who have been objecting to the use of his music. Um, and we saw, you know, the, the, the only other campaign historically where you've just seen a lot of this repeatedly was by the McCain campaign in 2008, where you had a series of artists who objected throughout the, the, the campaign. Uh, but that was through both the primary season and the general election. Uh, Trump is just about to the point here in the primary season uh, in terms of getting objections from musical artists, I think where McCain was throughout the entire campaign in 2008. So if Trump keeps going, um, not only will he have been able to employ music to express a wide variety of messages, but he, he may very well become the record holder in terms of the number of musical artists who object to him using their music. Mm-hmm. So we'll get back to Trump and Sanders and how and how they move, um, use their music today. But first, a little history from your your fascinating book. Um, campaign songs have really been around since, I guess, George Washington. Why did this start? Well, it began um, not not really as campaign music, but uh, with a- after after Washington's first election. There's music written for his inauguration, almost like coronation music. Uh, to you know, to to extol all of his virtues and why it was such a good thing that he was the first president, and when he was running the second time, that those songs kind of became the de facto campaign songs that were used uh, to to promote his candidacy a second time around. And so once that began, other candidates were using that music, but it it really wasn't front and center on on the campaign trail until you get to the election of 1840. What happened then? Well, it, it, it was actually a build-up to 1840 uh, in that uh, you had, during the, during the 1830s, uh, with a lot of Jacksonian reforms, uh, you have the expansion of the right to vote, uh, the removal of property qualifications on the right to vote. And so even though the right to vote was still greatly, um, is still greatly restricted in terms of uh, women couldn't vote and um, uh, persons of color couldn't vote, uh, there was pretty much universal suffrage amongst white men, including a lot of men who didn't have any formal education, may have been in a lot of cases illiterate. And so, you know, campaign literature was not going to sway them over. Uh, But what was used very effectively in 1840 was music uh, to express the campaign messages. And that really became a watershed moment uh, in 1840. The famous song Tippy Canoe and Tyler Two was set at the time to have sung uh, Harrison and Tyler into the White House. And from there on, it, it for the remainder of the 19th century into the early 20th century, uh, campaign music became a staple of, of what 
candidates did on on the campaign trail. So people were sort of singing to each other, people with like an earworm. They were hearing from one place to another and that's spreading the word of the campaign. Exactly. Uh, Either you would have that music performed live at a campaign rally. And then the the idea was that people would take those, you know, they would they would keep singing those songs afterwards and and take it home to wherever, you know, to to, to sing to people there. Uh, Or the songbooks were distributed and and, people would would play those songs. Supporters would play those songs on behalf of the campaign. At what point did you stop using original tunes and sort of merge with the advertising industry here? Well, that, that was a process that was a long time coming. Um, it, you, you start to see a little bit of that once you, you have the rise of radio. Um, at that point, celebrity culture starts to take hold a little more, including with musical celebrities. Um, but even through the 1950s, 1960s, you have a lot of original songs written for these candidates. And it, it, it is, though, moving toward this almost kind of the same sort of thing you would see on Madison Avenue at the time, uh, the, you know, the, the, the jingles that will be written to sell, uh, you know, all sorts of products. You kind of see songs like that on the campaign trail developing, you know, songs like I Like Ike or the Kennedy song. Um, but by the time you get into the 1980s, as advertisers are also switching to use pop music, and they aren't having original ad jingles anymore, uh, campaigns do that as well. And in part, both campaigns and uh, advertisers start to move to pop music because if you go back to to looking at social movements in the 1960s, 1970s, civil rights movement, women's rights movement, anti-Vietnam war movement, you see a lot of popular music being used uh, to promote the messages of those movements and it is very successful. And so you start to see both advertisers and uh, presidential campaigns use that type of music as well as we get into the 1980s and 1990s and then through to today. All right. So, and and Reagan, what did he do? Because that that seems like a a turning point in a way. Yeah, Reagan. He he. Well, he he tried to. He he did a couple of different things. Number one, he tried to harness popular culture in various ways, and it makes sense that you know someone who was known as a great communicator uh, would try to use music as another way to communicate his message. Uh, he he tried to take hold of um, the 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 great success of Bruce Springsteen's "Born in the USA." Uh, but that was much to the chagrin of Springsteen, who spoke out against it. He was not a Reagan supporter. Uh, in fact, he's been a, a strong supporter of, of Democratic presidential candidates for many years. Uh, but what Reagan did do uh, m- more successfully was use uh, Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. Um, and it's a song that had a lot of patriotic themes in it. Uh, it was not a song written for the campaign. I mean, it was a song that was written by by Greenwood and had, had no... Uh, no inclinations to have that uh, to be a, a song to be used in, in by a political candidate, but it fit a lot of themes that Reagan was trying to promote quite well, and it was a song that was uh, it was well known. It was popular when he used it in 1984, uh, and it 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 was one of the early instances of a a presidential candidate using a pop song. They didn't rewrite the lyrics for the campaign, but the lyrics fit well, uh, and it was used at, at campaign events to to promote Reagan, and that became somewhat of a trendsetter in that uh, every every candidate since then has used that pre-existing pop music to promote their campaigns. Um, I'd like to go back to something you said, because I think that happens a lot, uh, and when we start talking about today as well, and that's the artists themselves protesting the use of their music. Um, what the consent issue 
Is it is it just because because I mean they can get rights from the rights holders, right? They don't need the artist's consent, but I guess it's uh, not a good thing to have an artist saying we don't want you using your music. Am I correct? Yes, I mean there are two different issues there. The the one is the the straight kind of more straightforward copyright issue, right? So have you secured proper copyright permission? And so campaigns in the last couple of elections, especially, um, many of them have been very good about securing copyright permission. But just because they secured copyright permission, um, a that that doesn't mean that uh, the uh, the actual singer or artist holds a copyright. And B, even if they do, uh, they may not have specifically agreed uh, to, uh, to, to support this candidate, right? Because there may be a blanket license that was issued by ASCAP uh, for the campaign. And if that's the case, the candidates still run the risk of an improper implied endorsement, uh, whereby even if they have copyright permission, the artists may say, well, I don't personally like that candidate. And by that candidate playing their playing my song at their rally, they are trying to project to the public that I support them when I don't. Uh, and if that happens, that can also give rise to a violation of, of legal rights, and ultimately could could result in a lawsuit being filed. Right, against some bad will. And I understand that Trump, but he he's one of them that keeps using them anyway, even though artists protest. He, he does, and that that's that's a that's a market difference from what most candidates have done in that situation in recent years, because most of them recognize that they play a song, even if it's a good song, and they like it, expresses a campaign message. That boy, the negative publicity, it, it just isn't worth it uh, because it becomes a drag on the campaign. But Trump, you know, who was you know famously said in other instances that you know he doesn't apologize and he's not someone to back down. He just keeps using the song and um, you know to this point he's you know there have been artists who have publicly complained uh, about him using their music uh, some of them have even sent cease and desist letters we haven't had any of them uh, at least as far as I know who have to this point filed a lawsuit to, to stop him um, but if he continues uh, the way he's going that that's something that could happen we've seen we've seen artists file lawsuits against uh, campaigns in the past and before we move on to him um what about Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton, not only, you know, I remember the Fleetwood Mac song that was always on, but he also played the saxophone. He seemed to have like sort of a musical persona in, in his campaign in general. Yeah, I mean, uh, Clinton is uh, much like Reagan. I mean, he is someone who is very good at crafting a message and, and I'm selling. I'm speaking of Bill, sorry. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, Bill Clinton. Uh, he, he is very good at, at crafting a message, at, at getting getting his, his ideas communicated well to the public. And you're right. I mean, what, what Bill Clinton was doing, I think, as, as you point out, and some of the other things he was doing in terms of going on Arsenio Hall and, and playing the saxophone with the sunglasses and, and everything else, uh, he was using music to help promote his, his image. Uh, and the Fleetwood Mac song is uh, Don't Stop is actually a very good example of music used well in that it was a song that was popular <clears throat> when it came out in, in 1977. Um, but it, 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 because it wasn't a new song, it was popular amongst baby boomers who were at in 1992 getting to an age where they were turning out to vote in larger numbers. So it spoke very well to the demographic he was, he was looking for. Uh, it did fit his message overall pretty well in terms of focusing on the future and, and making a change from, from the way things had gone in the 1980s and early 90s. 
Uh, and he had the support of the artists, so he didn't have to run into these problems of the, the artists complaining and that being a, a kind of some negative publicity that would be a drag on the campaign. So in a lot of ways, it's it's a good song. Um, now, the, the song was not written for the campaign, of course. It was originally written to describe the breakup of two band members. So, you know, when, <laughs> when you look beneath the surface uh, and you look at the, all the lyrics, it's probably not the best fit. But at these rallies, that's not how the song is used, right? I mean, the rally ends, the candidates stop speaking, they play the music, and it's only the first few lines that you hear before the TV coverage cuts away, or even at the rally, it's really the hook that gets emphasized rather than all the other lyrics in the song. So looking at today, when I look at the candidates, everyone seems to have made an official playlist. This, this seems important. Why? Well, the uh, the official playlist, you know, the Spotify playlist, uh, for example, which a number of candidates have used, uh, it is it's actually a really good way of getting the the message out in a different format. But then you don't uh, you don't run into those same potential copyright or implied endorsement issues that you would by playing a song without the artist's consent. And speaking of the different candidates, Bernie Sanders' playlist has at least four or five songs with the word revolution in it. So that must be what his point. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, Sanders is a candidate who's been very good about staying on message, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, some of these songs, as you said, that have the word revolution in it uh, or, um, you know, what he's done uh, playing at some of his rallies uh, or having you know, kind of sing-alongs at his rallies of uh, This Land is Your Land, uh, using Simon and Garfunkel's song America in one of his ads. Uh, he's been very good at, at staying focused on message in terms of, you know, this notion of having a revolution, having it for the American people, having it for, you know, the, the common person. Um, and that's very much in line with what he says in his speeches that he wants to, uh, you know, reorient how we do our, our tax system and how public benefits are distributed and, and to do some, some really revolutionary things. So in a sense, he is really focused on his core message. Now, it's been one of the things that, you know, Hillary Clinton and others have, have complained that, you know, he's kind of has a one track focus, uh, but he's, he's definitely been very good at staying on message in that regard, even with music. So uh, we'll put up to the link if you guys want to see which songs they are that talk about revolution. He's actually one of the candidates that has recorded his own record, I understand. This was a album of folk music that he sang, right? Yes, in, yes. From in the 80s. Yeah, it's, it's a bit uh, a while ago, but that that album that he put out, uh, you know, he's, he's come back to, um, you know, being able to sing on the campaign trail. Uh, and, you know, as, as in, even in, in some very recent events where he's, you know, done this sing along with, with the, the crowd at the rally. Um, and if you don't have a good singing voice, you don't have that type of background, that may not be something you want to do. And so he's, he's able to do that. It gives him another, another tool in the toolbox, if you will, uh, to, to be able to campaign. What do you make of him um, being interviewed by Killer Mike? Um, I well, I A rap uh, artist Killer Mike. <laughs> oh, um, I, I well, I didn't I didn't see the interview, so um, I, I I'm not quite sure what what uh, what was said or, or or what he did there. But um, uh, you know, I I think he and if you see some if if you look uh, over the course of his rallies, uh, he does um, invite in uh, quite a fair number of musical artists from different genres and he really tries to appeal to a lot of 
artists who would have have different types of music that they play and i think it's one of the things that has helped him especially with younger voters to you know even though he's 74 years old uh he's, he's doing very well amongst millennials uh, moving to hillary how does how does she use hillary clinton use music in her campaign well um hillary clinton is um it's sort of interesting because uh last year there was actually a report that came out that she had spent um, several thousand dollars for her campaign did hiring musical consultants, uh, which in some ways kind of goes to her candidacy uh, and what some have, have criticized her for in that, you know, she's looking to craft a message that she thinks voters want to hear to help get her elected rather than really expressing what she what she believes on the issues. Um, and this would kind of go hand in hand with that as far as, you know, a, a, a criticism that, that would be in line with what people say about her on policy. Uh, but she she's tried to project an image with a lot of her songs, uh, like the use of fight song uh, or the use of, of roar uh, as a way to project that, that she is she's a fighter, right, that she will go out there and get things done. That's Katy Perry. Yes. Yes. Katy Perry's song roar uh, and that, that she'll go out there and she'll she'll. She'll be effective, right? That and it goes with her message that she has experience uh, in various settings, uh, you know, from uh, being first lady to being a senator to being secretary of state. Uh, she's she's had all the experiences that someone would need in order to be a, an effective president, uh, and she'd go out there and get things done. And so the the music that she has used has largely reinforced that message pretty well. And then um, someone like someone who has more of an unusual taste, Marco Rubio seems to like house music and more, you know, electronica. Yeah, and and this is one of those cases where uh, I think similar to uh, you know Paul Ryan as the vice presidential candidate in 2012, uh, who you know like Rage Against the Machine and and, and other you know uh, rock music. In some ways, it doesn't quite fit the persona of you know what you would expect given the the, the policy views that the candidate has um, and some of the messages that that might be in the music. Uh, but you know, I mean, especially amongst. Uh, you know, I think both with with Paul Ryan as well as with Marco Rubio, they're relatively young, and so you know their their musical tastes uh, probably reflect that a little bit. Um, but it's it's the case all with both of them where um, the artists have, in some instances, objected where because you know the artists have different political views than those candidates do. Yeah, actually, the Swedish duo Axwell and Ingrosso stopped ordered a cease and desist. Right, and so they, you know, that, that that's another example of. Yeah, you know, I think the and we've seen this before, and we've seen it with Trump as well, where the candidate likes the song, and you know, or they like the artist, they want to play it because it's just kind of it's you know they're out there on the campaign trail trying to express who they are, and this is part of who they are, and they like the song, it gets them kind of energized to to give their speech or, or to go on to the next rally. But if it's the case that the artist doesn't like them and what they stand for, then you get this negative publicity that's the fallout. But what you're saying, though, is still is something positive. It seems that you're saying that they're actually choosing this music. He likes the music. It's not like a, at an agency saying you should do house music and be young and hip. He wanted that himself then. Because if not, he would be advised to do something else better fitting his constituency. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, with, uh, and and I, again, I, I would go back to both Rubio this year and then uh, Paul Ryan in 2012 that, you know, from the 
from the, the kind of the, the, the media reports on those candidates' backgrounds, it looks like the, the, those songs and, 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 and that type of music are things that they would normally listen to and that they like. And so that's, you know, what they put out there to project it. Um, you know, in, in, in either case, whether it's, it's this, um, this house music for Rubio or Rage Against the Machine for Paul Ryan, um, you know, given, you know, who, votes from whom they're, they're trying to, to, to seek to, in order to be elected, uh, those may not be the, you know, if a musical consultant were brought in, those may not be the best first choices that would be suggested by the consultant. But yeah, I think in those cases, it's the candidates themselves who like the song and it's something that energizes them and, and gets them geared up to be on the campaign trail. And that's why they played it. And John Kasich seems to like Pink Floyd so much that he said that he can actually reunite Roger Waters and David Gilmore to play at his inauguration. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, uh, if, if he can first get to that point and be inaugurated and then second of all, to bring them together. Um uh, you know, anything's possible, right? Um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, you look to um, the Bill Clinton campaign. You know, and and after the this, getting the support of Fleetwood Mac, he had them play at some of his uh, inaugural events. Um, and so sometimes, if you can get that synergy together, um, it's enough to 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 bring the the, the band in, and, and they they can follow you and and be supportive even after the campaign is over. Um, I guess that that will remain to be seen with uh, with John Kasich. Okay, so. Donald Trump. You mentioned Neil Young and Rocking in the Free World. Someone else wrote that he he tends to use Nessum Dorma, um, the opera which they described as giving off almost a fascist vibe when he comes in having this big opera. How would you say his use of music works? Well, he, you know, at, and I think this goes to the way he campaigns. Um, and it's a way a number of, uh, of candidates have used music in recent years, but he probably does it to a greater degree than anyone else, is being able to choose music that will express whatever his message is for the day. Right. Uh, because he has a lot of different themes that he's he's put out there and he's someone who and it's against been a criticism of him uh, in terms of changing policy positions and whatnot. Uh, but he's also put out new messages and been very good at branding um, himself and other other candidates. And that's one of the reasons for his success. So whether it's, you know, using initially rocking in the free world uh, and getting out this uh, message that, you know, he's the best candidate to represent what is. Uh, America and American freedom, uh, or uh, the use of Aerosmith's "Dream On" as a way early on in the campaign to say, "Hey, you know, dream about what you want. You know, I can bring that to you as as a candidate." Uh, or when he was really going after Ted Cruz uh, about Cruz not being in, in in Trump's view, not being a natural born citizen and thus not eligible for the presidency, uh, he was playing uh, the Bruce Springsteen song uh, "Born in the USA," uh, and then more recently, uh, as you've seen. Uh, a, a lot of Republicans turn against him and say, well, you know, he doesn't stand for the things we want. Uh, he's been playing uh, the Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, uh, as a way to express a message. Well, hey, you know, you may not get everything you want out of me, but uh, I, you're going to get more that you want if I'm president than any of these other Republican nominees or certainly more than any of the Democratic nominees. Uh, and so in that way, Trump has been very good at changing the message to whatever is kind of his main point at the moment, uh, and he's been he's been very effective at finding songs that get that message out. Finally, I just want to round off and ask you about President Obama and his use of music throughout his two campaigns and and, and the presidency. What how, what would you say? 
it's been an effective use of music uh, on the whole. Um, you know, in, in the first campaign, he was using uh, "Signed, Sealed, Delivered" uh, as a way to kind of express himself. That uh, you know, and, and that was the main song he used on the campaign trail. He, he used some others, but that was the main one um, as a way to express that, "Hey, I'm I'm yours as a candidate. You know, don't worry that you know I'm at the time I'm a relatively unknown." Uh, senator, um, you know that you you can trust me. I you know I belong to you, the American people, and that that expressed that message quite well. Uh, in 2012, it was a bit of a different uh, message that was out there. And, you know, and, and you look at his Spotify playlist, for example, more songs that talked about you know let's stay together. For instance, uh, was was one of the songs that was used, and that makes sense for an incumbent to use that type of song to have that type of message. Uh, but the in the general election, the main song that was used beginning with the national convention was uh, a, a new song by Springsteen at the time, We Take Care of Our Own, which was actually a very effective song for a Democratic candidate focusing on issues of um, you know, promoting social welfare, promoting equality. It went very, very well hand in hand with uh, his kind of signature uh, congressional uh, victory in the Affordable Care Act. Um, and that was contrasted very much so with um, the what Romney used that year, which was Kid Rock's Born Free, which again was a very good song for him and helped uh, to send the message to Tea Partiers in particular that you know he was a candidate who would stand for freedom and kind of a you know, government off my backs type of approach. You saw a very good contrast in the in the musical messages by the two campaigns there, um, and I think that was a case where the there was the, you know you didn't have any type of misrepresentation, right? The, the songs really did a good job for both campaigns during the general election, at least, of reinforcing their messages. Right, right, and he seems to be doing just yesterday. I think it was he had uh, Lin Manuel Miranda of Hamilton in the Rose Garden freestyling rap. Um, <laughs> so, so he seems to be, you know, into sort of music and culture and putting it out there. Oh, yes, absolutely. And of course, that, that's another benefit of also being, um, you know, a, a president in the last year of your second term. You can, uh, you can kind of do a little bit of experimentation like that. And, you know, there, there are no repercussions, right? right. Uh, Meet who uh, you, you want. <laughs> right. You, you don't have to be up for, for election again. You know, he still has some some fights on his hands, including what's going to happen with that Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, but, you know, on the whole, he's and you kind of see him in the last few months, especially as, you know, he knows it's it's nearing the end of his presidency and that he can kind of more freely express what he wants to. Uh, and, and I think that that's also happening with, with music for him, too. Dr. Casper, thank you so much for your time. This was so interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Dr. Eric Casper. His book, written with Benjamin Schoening, is called Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, The Politics of Songs and Musicians in Presidential Campaigns. And go to popcultureconfidential.com for more info. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) 
<laughs> avoid <laughs> elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. <laughs> <laughs>